So let's try this. Good evening. You see, Pastor Bill said that I'm family now and don't require introduction. I didn't want to correct him because anybody who's not worth introducing is not worth listening to. (laughs) But I I really took the compliment of being family very, very strongly. I I appreciated that very much. Now, I want to thank you all for coming tonight. You know, first of all, Tuesday night is always the lowest night of attendance. That's because that's the night that the restaurants always have the coupons. Seriously, you know. Um, But with that in mind, I appreciate you coming because we announced the topic that I was going to be talking about the theological reasons that any old earth compromise was unacceptable. Now, we primarily think about the gap theory, but there are actually five major compromises that people will try to use to put millions and billions of years into the Bible, which are not there, because they are compromising with the evolutionists. Now, first of all, I think you would have to agree. Anytime you compromise the Bible with anything, you've made a mistake. I should have gotten a much bigger amen. (laughs) I said anytime you compromise the Bible with anything, you're making a big mistake. Is that right? So first of all, these are compromises with the world. These are people who, as I was educated in evolution, when you become a Christian, many people think, that you can simply add evolution to the Bible. They'll they'll think that science teachers will never lie to you. Well, the fact of the matter is they will. Hello? Think what it says in Romans chapter 1. Paul says there are those people who will suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I spent 20 years of my life being taught by men and women who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, they were teaching me evolution. Some of them did it to get a paycheck. Some of them did it going along with the crowd. Some of them parroted what they were being taught. And in fact, that's kind of the sort of evolutionist I was. I was just parroting what I was taught because it's the only thing I knew. Some of them do it just to get a paycheck. But there were those men and women in my life who taught me evolution knowing it was wrong because it supported the worldview they wanted to believe, even though they knew it wasn't true. Hello? So tonight we are going to be talking about not only the gap theory, but the day-age theory, the framework theory, the allegory theory, the progressive creationist theory. There are these various, various compromises. Now, why should we do that? I know many of you say, well, I don't believe the gap theory, and that's great. I'm very glad that you don't believe it. But for many people, this is a good review, and you might learn just a few things you didn't remember. Amen? (laughs) So let's start just taking a little look. Now, first of all, let's talk about the gap theory for just a moment. Now, we'll be, again, adjusting lights and putting them down here in the platform and so forth. You can see see them. But what is the gap theory or any old earth view of theology here uh, concerning the book of Genesis? Well, what they do is they try to force a gap between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 that simply doesn't exist. Now, uh, again, guys, if we can get those lights down. Uh, yeah, well, they're coming. There you go. Just keep on going. You're, you'll get there eventually. It's a, and, uh, well, they say that, of course, the Bible says, in the beginning, God. Now, first of all, I like that. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. 
And then it says in verse 2, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. The narrative continues. But, but those who want to put millions and billions of years into the Bible to compromise with evolutionary teaching, look at the Bible. And they say, well, there's nowhere else you can put millions and billions of years except to insert them between those two verses. And they say there was an initial creation, and then there was a second creation later, and they make all kinds of compromises. But they're trying to put millions and billions of years in there that simply do not exist. So we're looking at that tonight. We're going to be refuting all those other compromises that I've mentioned. Now, let's just take a look at a quotation from Dr. James Barr. He's professor of Hebrew at Vanderbilt University, Regis Professor of Hebrew at Oxford. I think he's got some good credentials. How about you? Yeah? Now, he is a world-class authority on the Hebrew language, and he said this concerning those people who want to twist what the Hebrew says, that probably, as far as I know, there is no professor of Hebrew of Old Testament at any world-class university who does not believe that the writer of Genesis 1-11 through intended to convey to the readers the idea that creation took place in a series of six days, which were the same as the days of 24 hours we now experience. So he says, there may be professors of Hebrew that don't want to believe it's true, but if they look at the Hebrew language, it says six literal 24-hour days. Now, it may not fit their worldview, it may not fit their opinion of things, but even the most liberal professor of Hebrew that is being honest will tell you it isn't there, those millions and billions of years. But he goes on to say this, or to put it negatively, the apologetic arguments which suppose the days of creation to be long eras of time. Again, there's the day-age theory, the framework theory, the allegory theory, these various reviews. Um, the figure, actually, uh, the supposed days of creation to be long areas of time, the figures of years not to be chronological, and the flood to be merely local, Mesopotamian flood, and not are not taken seriously by such professors as far as I know. He doesn't know the world-class professor Hebrew that looking at the Hebrew would tell you that there's any gap there. And so we want to take a look at that. Now, again, people who make these compromises... This is a, a comment, a quotation from Bert Thompson. He's another creationist. Um, and what he's doing here is he's saying, you know, these people who want to make these compromises for whatever reason he's commenting on them, he says, surely it is one of the bitterest of ironies that those who were so determined to find a compromise, allowing them to believe the biblical record, uh, are those who, because of that very compromise, ended up believing the Bible less and less until finally they do not believe it at all. Again, you make one compromise, that leads to two, two leads to four, four leads to eight. And once you start with that compromise, especially when it comes to creation, it is a slippery slope. Once you've made one compromise, then you will make two, and then more and more and more, and eventually you end up not believing it at all. And that is a very cogent comment. Now, let's take a look at what Martin Luther has to say about it. Does anybody here remember a guy named Martin Luther? Yeah, I think he's a, you know, he was a pretty good Protestant. Is that right? That's where the word Protestant comes from, a Protestant. And, uh, well, I think he's a pretty good authority on Scripture. Um, 
But he says concerning the days of creation, quoting, when Moses writes that God created heaven and earth and what are in them in six days, then let this period continue to have been six days. But if you cannot understand how this could have been done in six days, then grant the Holy Spirit the honor of being more learned than you are. For you are to deal with Scripture in such a way that you bear in mind that God himself says what is written. But since God is speaking, it is not fitting for you wantingly to turn his word in the direction you wish to go. I like the guy, don't you, you know? In my personal study, I have a scriptorium of things. I actually own an original first edition 1611 Bible. But in my, in my study, I also have pages from even Bibles older than that. And on the wall to the right of my study desk, I have the first two pages of the Gospel of Luke from Luther's first edition. Now, I think Luther's a pretty good authority on Scripture, and he's, he's saying, you know, if you change the Word of God in any way to suit your own purposes, you're making a big mistake. Is that right? And so anybody that makes any of these compromises is making a really big mistake. Let's think about the New Testament authors. Now, when you take a look at the books of the New Testament, how many of them accept Genesis 1 through 11 as being historical? Well, the fact is that only four books in the New Testament do not specifically talk about Genesis 1 to 11. All the other books reference creation, Genesis 1 through 11, and all accept them as historical. Hello? And let's just take a look at the history of why did people start to not believe the inerrancy of Scripture? Now, of course, there have always been unbelievers. I mean, it starts back in the Garden of Eden. <laughs> you know. uh, but, but let's think about in modern times, what caused people to, to stop believing the Bible? Well, we're going to go historically to the year 1795. Now, I, I'd apologize, but James Hutton, who was Scottish, I apologize, I apologize. I didn't have anything to do with it, okay? But he was Scottish, I'm sorry to say. But, but he didn't believe the Bible. Now, he's an interesting man in terms of his history, but, but he was looking for reasons not to believe. He is the man who said that when it came to the history of the earth, the history of the universe, there was no beginning and no end. That, that it was all simply eternal. That is a very evolutionary concept. But in 1795, uh, by the way, he was uh, a medical doctor by training. He actually earned an MD, but never practiced. He never, once he earned his MD, he simply went home and eventually became a gentleman farmer. But he wrote two very influential books, volume one, volume two, of his book, Theory of the Earth. And in this book, which is extremely difficult to read. His, his English prose is extremely difficult to read. But in there, he simply was promoting the idea that the earth and the universe were not 6,000 years old, that they were infinitely old and had an infinite future. And those books became influential at the end of the 1700s. As a matter of fact, people like Sir Charles Lyell would build upon these very ideas. Sir Charles Lyell was the mentor of Charles Darwin. But uh, I want to talk about a gentleman, Thomas Chalmers, in 1813. 
Again, I apologize, he was Scottish. I'm sorry. I, anyway, but, but Thomas Chalmers, now, he was uh, involved with the Church of Scotland and the Free Church of Scotland. Now, in those days, 200 years ago, what that meant was the church associated with the state church and the one that wasn't associated as a state church. But in 1813, as a professor of theology, he came up with the gap theory. And he's a man who believes that the evolutionists of his time are publishing science and proving that it's all millions and billions of years old. So in the early 1800s, this theologian thinks that evolutionists are telling truth. And then he thinks, well, if they are telling the truth, and if the Bible is the Word of God, then they must be compatible, and so he inserts evolution into the Bible. And in 1813, what does he do? He invents the gap theory, inserting millions and billions of years between verse 1, verse 2 of chapter 1 in Genesis. And the third person I'm going to bring up specifically is Charles Darwin himself. Now, Charles Darwin didn't invent evolution. Evolution has been around for literally thousands of years. The, the theories, philosophy of evolution has been around for thousands of years. It's not new. And many people credit him for coming up with evolution, but the fact of the matter is his father, Robert, M.D., his grandfather, Erasmus, M.D., were solid evolutionists. Charles Darwin actually got most of his evolutionary ideas from his grandfather, Erasmus, though they never met. Erasmus died before Charles was born, but he'd written extensively about evolution. And so Charles Darwin, well, he steeped in evolutionary concepts, and in 1859 will publish his very famous book, The Origin of Species by Natural Selection. And uh, in this book, what happens? Well, he makes people doubt that there's any creator to begin with. So what happens? Hutton takes away 6,000 years. Uh, Chalmers is attacking the truth of the Bible and inserting the supposed new truth of evolutionary science. And finally, Charles Darwin comes along and takes away the creator altogether. How are we doing? Just a basic history here. Now, Thomas Chalmers, he invented the gap theory in 1813. But it's not the historical position of the church. Now, in 1876, oh, by the way, Thomas Chalmers published his work uh, anonymously under a pseudonym because he realized how controversial what he was writing was all about, and his work was not published until after he was dead. So he wanted to avoid the conflicts that he knew he was going to create. But in 1876, a man named George Pember would pen a book called Earth's Earliest Ages, in which he would expand the theory of the gap theory, and he would expand it with many nuances added to it. Now, many non-Pentecostal Christians accepted the gap theory because of the Schofield Reference Bible published in 1909 and 1917. Dr. Schofield believed the gap theory, and he inserted it into his commentary. Now, he inserted it in Genesis, right there in Genesis 1-1-1-2. Later, when the new Schofield came out, the people who were publishing it realized the problem and trying to avoid the controversy kept the gap theory in the new Schofield, 
but moved the first references to Ezekiel and Isaiah and referred you back to Genesis in the chain references. But also, for those Christians who are called Pentecostals, they accepted the gap theory because of Dake's Annotated Reference Bible, published in 1963. Now, it's a terrible piece of work. It's not a commentary. It's 3,000 of his personal opinions. But the fact of the matter is, there was an influential book. Now, I don't know why anybody would be influenced by Dake. Um, does anybody know anything about the history of Finnis Dake? No? Finnis Dake held credentials with two different denominations, lost credentials with both of the denominations. Um, the first one, because he was caught with an underage woman across the state line. And then he got credentials with another denomination, but did the same thing again later. So finally, he'd been kicked out of two denominations and became independent. Now, why? Why would you want to listen to this guy? But the gap theory simply violates scriptures to begin with. Now, let's take a brief review of what the gap theory or any of these other older views typically will try to promote. Number one. They say that God created a first earth, later he destroyed it, or ruined it, and created a second earth, or restored it. Um, Thomas Chalmers originally called it the ruin restoration theory, but later it became commonly called the gap theory. But uh, it was originally the ruin restoration theory. And that in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 it says, and the earth became, versus and the earth was. Uh, that's very important. Now, it goes on to say that there's a gap of millions and billions of years between Genesis 1, 1, 1, 2, during which life, death, and evolution occurred, uh, a time when there were no people, or maybe there were people. There's an argument there amongst them. Um, there may have been a pre-Adamic race. Again, the gap theory is referred to as the ruin restoration theory, or it's sometimes referred to as the pre-Adamic position. Now, the problem with that is this. There are people who believe in the gap, but they understand the theological problems of there being people before Adam and Eve. And so some of them believe that there were people just like us, and that things got so bad that God had to completely obliterate the whole thing and start over. Now, first of all, please tell me, is that consistent with the character of God? Tell me, if there were people like us, and things got so bad that God had to wipe them out and start over, then, well, that means that God isn't the all-knowing God, is that correct? And that he can let things get out of hand. Not the God of the Bible I know. Um, some say that there was a pre-Adamic race of creatures that looked like humans, but they had no souls. Now, that's an impossibility. You can't be alive without a soul. Um, but they say that because they realize there's a problem with death coming into the universe through human sin. And so they say, well, yeah, there were people, but they weren't really people. Hello? And then, of course, there are those who realize the problem of, of again, human sin uh, and people being alive before human sin with death, disease, and dying. And so they say there wasn't, well, there weren't any people at all. So there's three views there. Uh, it's not universal. And then they talk about Lucifer. Now, first of all, ladies and gentlemen, um, the word Lucifer, it's Latin. 
Would you please tell me when the Bible was originally written in Latin? Excuse me? No, it was written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Is that correct? The word Lucifer comes from the Vulgate of St. Jerome, who translated the Bible into Latin uh, around 400. So how'd that get in here? Well, he says, uh, well, the gap theory, that Lucifer fell to earth during this gap prior to Adam and Eve even being created, and that he was there, in essence, waiting for them in ambush. And they say that Noah's flood was a local flood. That, that the flood described in, in Genesis, uh, Noah's flood, they say that was just a local flood because they make the flood of the entire earth, which they do recognize, but they make it in Genesis verse, chapter 1, verse 2, the waters of creation. And so they say that the entire earth was flooded in what they refer to as Lucifer's flood, and say that that is what is being described in Genesis 1-2, that the, the waters of creation with the Holy Spirit moving over them and so forth, that that was the flood of the entire earth, obliterating the earth that had initially existed and is mentioned only in verse 1. Are your brains warped enough now as it is? I mean, well, let's keep going. Now, what is the true meaning of Genesis chapter 1, verses 1-5? through 5? It says, in the beginning. Now that's the start of time, correct? God, the Hebrew word Elohim, but it refers to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, created the heaven, which is space, and the earth, which is matter. Now, God is a perfect scientist. Okay, folks, that was your opportunity to say amen, okay? I'll give you a second chance now. I said God is a perfect scientist. Now, Scientists talk about the time, space, mass continuum. And whether you believe in creation or evolution, all scientists will agree in what is called the time, space, mass continuum. Now, of course, evolutionists believe in eternal time, space, and mass. We believe it was created 6,000 years ago, but they will agree if one had a beginning, the other two started at the same time. And isn't it interesting that the very first statement of the Bible is the time, space, mass, continuum. God is a perfect scientist. And it's the perfect order of creation. Because think with me for just a moment. God starts the very first word of the Bible in Hebrew, Berashit, at the beginning. At the beginning. God creates time. It's the perfect order of sequence because without time there's nothing to record. And then God created space. Well, that's, well, why did he create space next? Because if you don't have space, you've got nowhere to put anything. Some of you apparently need to process that one. For, and then he creates the earth, which is, of course, matter, and he puts it in the space. You see, so it's the perfect order of creation. Now, going on, and, ladies and gentlemen, that is probably the most important three-letter word in the Bible, and the earth was. And this one word tells you that this text is written in what is called Hebrew continuous narrative. In language, we use language and we actually have sub-languages. In English, we have a kind of English language we use to write poetry. But that's not the same kind of language that you write a scientific journal, correct? 
It's not the same kind of language you use when you write a novel, fiction, right? So within our language, we have different kinds of languages. We have the poetic language, the descriptive language. We have the historical language. Genesis 1.1 is written in historical Hebrew language, meaning the intent of the writer, this is real history. Now, the earth was. That was a state of being at the time of creation. But the gap theorists, the old earth theorists, want to say, it says, no, no, it doesn't say, and the earth was. It says, the earth, and the earth became. But ladies and gentlemen, that's not what it says in Hebrew. Again, even the most liberal Hebrew scholar will tell you it says, in Hebrew, and the earth was a state of being at the time of its creation. And then it says, without form and void. Uh, here we could, for instance, substitute unformed and unfilled. After all, God is the potter and we are the clay. Is that correct? And when God spoke the earth into existence, it's kind of like a lump of clay. And over six days, he's going to finish the forming like a potter. And he's going to finish the filling. And then we're going on. There was darkness upon the face of the deep because God had not yet created light. That doesn't come along until verse 3, right? Um, and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, moved. I talked about this uh, previously, but this is an agricultural term which describes a bird fluttering its wings, hovering over a location, or brooding an egg. And so this is where, in darkness, the Holy Spirit starts the rotation of the earth, then God said, let there be light. Now in Hebrew, it's actually a command. Let there be light sounds kind of casual. It's certainly correct. But in Hebrew, it's a command. It's more like light be. You know, that God can simply speak light into existence and light will be. He doesn't need the sun, the moon, the stars to create light, to reflect light. He simply is the source of light. Is that correct? And there was light because he said so. He is sovereign. He's the eternal sovereign God with absolute authority. And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, or in the Hebrew, yam, and the darkness he called night, lael, and the evening and the morning were the first day. Now, again, you are going to find people they are going to be Christians or non-Christians. And would you agree with me, if we find Christians who believe in millions and billions of years, we need to lovingly educate them. Hello? We need to lovingly educate them because they are simply dealing from either ignorance, lack of knowledge, and we are all ignorant about various things. It's not a bad word, but, but they simply lack knowledge or they lack faith or both, and we need to lovingly educate them. Agreed? Now, with that in mind, what does the word yam in Hebrew actually mean? Now, this is an extremely important thing. Um, it's important to me. It's important to God. Uh, it's so important that actually, in my book on creation, some of you have been kind enough to purchase, I have four pages in that book. I list every possible use of the word yam in Hebrew from the two largest Hebrew lexicons in existence to prove what the word yam means. And it does have multiple meanings, 
But the word yom is the common Hebrew word for day, and in the Old Testament it is used 2,301 times. I think that gives us a good sample. What do you think? Yeah. Now, outside of Genesis chapter 1, the word is used in the following way. 410 times with natural numbers. Now, natural numbers are 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. And when you use it with natural numbers, we're talking about literal 24-hour days or one rotation of the earth. Now, I'd like you to think about something for just a second. People are going to argue with you about what this word means and, and so forth. But tell me, is it important to see the sun to experience a day? Well, think with me. If I were to take you to a coal mine a mile underground, stick you in a room, lock the door, turn off the light, you would be in utter darkness. Is that correct? You could not see your hand in front of your face. But I, if I left you there while the earth made one complete rotation, when I opened the door again, you would have experienced a day. Is that correct? But you would never have seen the sun. You see, a day is a rotation one complete rotation of the earth, irrelevant whether you see the sun or not. Now, 38 times the word is translated evening and morning without the use of the word day. 23 times it's translated evening and morning with the word day. 52 times it's simply translated night and day. Uh, and uh, what about the use in such as the Feast of Yom Kippur? Now, Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. But this word can also be used uh, prophetically, such as in the Day of the Lord or the Day of Jacob's Trouble. It can be used in my Father's Day. Now, when I use the word day in that way, the day of the Lord, the day of Jacob's troubles, in my father's day, I am talking about a specific time. Is that correct? Nowhere in Hebrew can this word actually be translated millions and billions of years. It cannot be translated as era, epoch, eon, millions and billions of years with an indefinite beginning and an indefinite end. It's impossible to use it that way. And I would ask you to turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20 verses 8 to 11, because you've got to be able to defend this, first of all, for yourselves, secondly, to correct others who have erred. Is that correct? I would remind you, Jesus said Adam and Eve were there at the beginning. Did he say they came along millions of years later? No, he says at the beginning. But in Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11, we have the single greatest section of verses proving that the days of creation were literal one-day rotations. Six literal days of creation, one literal day of rest. Notice it says there, this is the middle of the giving of the Ten Commandments. Now, I think you've got to admit that even if you're not a Christian, the giving of the Ten Commandments is a pivotal point in human history. Is that correct? Such as the, the Code of Hammurabi and others. But it's a pivotal point in human history, regardless of whether you're a Christian or not. And notice that in the middle of the giving of the Ten Commandments, God believes that this is so important, he stops. And he says, you shall work six days and rest one because I worked six days and rested one. You see, the seven-day week, the six days of creation, the one day of rest, that's a template 
for how we're to live our lives. Think with me. I mean, God didn't need six days to create, so why did he take six days to create? You know, when I was younger, much younger, becoming a Christian, etc., um, people would say, I just cannot believe that God could do all those things listed on each individual day. You know, to create all the stars and so forth on one day. And they say, oh, I just cannot believe that he did that. As I have become a creation scientist, now speaking on it for 45 years, uh, I've come to ask the question, not why didn't he take a lot longer, uh, you know, than he did. I know why he took the amount of time that he did, but my question is, why did he take so long? Hello? El Shaddai, the Almighty God, all-powerful. What I really think happened on the first five days of creation is he created everything on that day in one second. And then he waited 23 hours, 59 minutes, and 59 seconds. And then he did everything on day two in one second. Hello? And then he waited. But why? He was giving us a template for how we're to live our lives. I'd like to ask you a question. Would you agree the seven-day week is universal around the world? Is that correct? First of all, that's a testament to the Bible being the one true religious document. But, but I would like to point out, how many of you are familiar with the French Revolution? The French Revolution, late 1700s, killed Louis XVI, Marie Antoinette, the most bloody revolution probably in human history killed all its own leaders. But uh, you know where the metric system comes from? Well, you're familiar with the metric system, right? Kilometers, meters, centimeters, etc., millimeters. It, that comes from the French Revolution. You see, when the French Revolution occurred, they didn't want to do anything the way that uh, Christian nations did them. And of course, the Christian nation they were thinking of was England which, of course, had feet and miles and so forth, which goes all the way back to the Romans. Um, and so what did they do? They decided to come up with the metric system. Now, the metric system has many advantages over the English system of measurements uh, because it's all in tens, right? But I would point out to you, it is no more accurate than the English system because when they came up with it, they made a mistake. You see, do you know why a meter is as long as it is? Yeah, a, a meter. A, a meter is a little more than a yard, okay? But what they did was they picked a spot in Paris and the North Pole. They divided the distance by 10 million, and they came up with the length of the meter. And they thought that was really neat stuff. The problem was they had the wrong distance. So the metric system is no more accurate than the English system. It's built on a mistake. Hello? But everything's done in tens, and it is easy to manipulate for that reason. And they said, well, if we're going to measure in tens, then we ought to have a 10-day work week. And so the, the revolution tried to, well, enforce a 10-day work week on the people, changing it from seven days. But, of course, while the metric system succeeded, the 10-day week did not because everybody knew a week was supposed to be seven days. Hello? 
And of course, the number seven in the Bible, a number of perfect spiritual number, uh, God's number as we often think about it and so forth. But you should never manipulate numbers beyond what God intends them to be used for. But if you think about it, the number seven is simply the number six plus one. Well, the number six is the number of man, is that right? And man without God is incomplete. It's only when you add God to that and make it seven that man becomes complete. How are we all doing? Good. Oh, I'm glad. Now, what's wrong with the gap theory? Well, first of all, the gap theory says that God is not omniscient, that God is not omnipotent. It says that God does not always have a witness. It says that God is a liar. It says that God cannot save a remnant. And most important of all, number six, that death of a nefesh organism occurs before human sin. Now, I think it's really, really important if you attack God's omniscience, his omnipotence, etc. Is that right? I think that's important. And if you're calling God a liar, I think that's important. But number six is the big one. You're saying that the death of a nefesh organism occurred before human sin. Now, I'll explain a little more, but let's look at what's wrong with all of that. Well, first of all, what's wrong with saying that God is not omniscient, he's not omnipotent? Well, first of all, you're saying God is not all-knowing, that there are things he does not know and has to learn. You believe that God is a weak God, that he doesn't know it all, that he's got to learn, that, that over time he turns a wrench here and a screwdriver there, and that he has to learn over time. Well, that is not the God of the Bible, is it? The God of the Bible says when he speaks, it happens. Absolute certainty now. You're saying that God is not all-powerful. He's not strong enough to do it all at one time. Again, that he is a weak God. That, uh, well, he is not El Shaddai, the almighty God. But what else is wrong with it? Well, let's take a look at, does, it says that God does not always have a witness. But what's the Bible say about that? Well, first of all, in Romans 20, from the creation of the world, people have been here to see the invisible God and his reality through the things he has made. And so Paul says that from the very creation, people have been here. Also, Luke 11, 50, 51, Jesus said, the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world, from creation. So that, uh, well, that means people had to be here from the very beginning. Is that correct? Or what about Mark 10, 6, also mentioned in Matthew 19, 4, Adam and Eve were there from the beginning of the creation. Or 2 Peter 3, 4, it says that as they were from the beginning of the creation, you know, that there were those who, who were destroyed in the flood of Noah, referred to in 2 Peter. What about the concept that uh, God is a liar? How does that work here? Well, first of all, I think you'll agree if you read the Bible, this is not what God says. He doesn't say there were millions and billions of years, is that right? Genesis 1. Each day is one rotation, one period of darkness, one period of light. I mean, God even says it's one period of darkness, one period of light, one rotation, right? And, again, I mentioned natural numbers. I would also point out if God says it's a day, it's a day. But take a look at things like Genesis chapter 7, 19 to 22. The flood is not local. God says, I'm going to wipe all 
the life off the surface of the earth except those in the ark. And in Genesis 9, 12 to 17, he says, I wiped out all the life that existed before the flood except those on the ark. Psalm 104, verses 5 to 9. This is a chronology of the flood. Now we have the flood recorded for us in Genesis, but the chronology of the flood is in Psalm 104. It's one of the eight great creation psalms. And so when you start reading Psalm 104, it's called a summary psalm because it summarizes, records the summary of the entire creation. The first four verses are a, a condensation, shall we say, of the creation week. It's simply a summary of the creation week in the first four verses. Verses 5 through 9 give us a chronology of the flood, and verses 10 and on talk about the earth after the flood. But notice what it says in Psalm 104, verses 5 through 9. In verse 5, God will send a flood. Verse 6 says, the water was standing above the mountains. Now, tell me, if the water was standing above the mountains, wouldn't uh, some of it at least slop over into the next valleys? And that's absolutely consistent with Genesis, because Genesis says the highest piece of land prior to the flood was covered by at least uh, 21 and a half feet of water. And so Genesis says that the highest piece of ground was covered with water completely. Psalm 104 says that the highest mountain was covered with water. Um, that's not a local flood. That is a global flood, correct? Exodus 20, 11, we've just taken a look at, but also you'll notice in Exodus chapter 31, verse 17, there's a, another reference you can add to that. Job 40, verse 15. Now, Job is living 350 years after the flood, and uh, there's a lot of creation stuff in Job. As a matter of fact, it's basically a book of science. But, but in chapter 40, verse 15, God talks about a dinosaur 350 years after the flood, one he calls Behemoth. Now, the word is actually Hebrew, but spelled in English characters, but it actually means beast of beasts. But it's a dinosaur, clearly. If you take a look at verses 16, 17, 18, it's a dinosaur. But you notice that God says that he made this dinosaur with you. The same day in creation, day six, God created the reptiles that fly through the air and swim in the water on day five, but God made the terrestrial dinosaurs on day six, the same day as Adam and Eve. And he says, I made this beast with you the same day. Also, Isaiah 45, 18, God says, I did not create the earth to be uninhabited. I created it to be inhabited inhabited immediately. He didn't create the earth and then wait for millions of years to put people there to inhabit it. He made it to be inhabited immediately. Hello? Also, notice Revelation 21, verse 1. Now, if the gap theory were true, if any theory that there was an original first earth, first universe, uh, which was done away with and then started over with a second one, notice Revelation 21, one. It says the first earth, first heaven, were done away with, and the second. But if the gap theory were true, wouldn't it be the third? You know, it says a new heaven, new earth. Does, wouldn't that be the third if the gap theory or any other view like that were right? Oh. 
Like I said, you may know some of these, but maybe I'm adding a little something that will be useful to you. Now, again, was Noah's flood local or global? Well, again, I referenced the Genesis 7 and Genesis 9 verses, all, all, etc. I mean, think with me. Again, Psalm 104, it was global, not local. Uh, Luke 17, the flood destroyed them all. Either that means all or some, is that correct? Likewise, in 2 Peter 3, verses 3 through 7, talking about the flood of Noah, the catastrophic event. As a matter of fact, Peter in the Greek uses the word cataclysmo, that the earth was cataclysmically destroyed all over during the flood, but that the earth itself was destroyed. And, uh, well, if it was local, why not just walk away? Hello? I mean, if the flood was local, why build an ark for a hundred years? Seems like an exercise in futility, unless you really needed it. Um, if a few thousand animals were to perish, then they would be quickly replaced. I think you'll all agree that, that uh, squirrels will make more squirrels. Uh, apparently some of you have to think about that one. Um, we're simply asking a question, does all, every, and all really mean a few, some, and a few? And the rainbow promise. Remember, the rainbow promise was not a covenant between God and man. It was a covenant between God and the earth. Now, I don't know how many of you are familiar with this. It would be nice if I had a little whiteboard up here for just a second. The ancient sign of war or peace was a bow and an arrow. You see, the rainbow promise, the covenant that God gives the earth, is referring to the ancient symbol of war and peace. And the ancient symbol was you would take a bow and string and an arrow. And if the arrow was pointed towards you, it was a sign of war. But if it was pointed away from you, it was a sign of peace. Now, when you look at the rainbow, which direction would the arrow be pointed? Up and away, is that correct? It was a covenant between God and the earth that he was at peace with the earth, and he says, I will never flood the earth with water again, as I did at the time of Noah's flood, correct? But if you think about it, we've had many local floods since then. So if it's a local flood, and we've had thousands of local floods since then, that kind of takes away from the whole thing, doesn't it? Oh. Now, what's wrong with the gap theory? Well, again, it says that God cannot save a remnant. But think with me about the character of God. The character of God is he always saves a remnant. But if the gap theory or other old earth views like that were true, then he cannot save a remnant. And think with me for just a moment. If he cannot save a remnant, how can you trust him to save you? Now, all life was supposedly destroyed in what is referred to as Lucifer's flood, and that God started over with Adam and Eve. That's what they say, right? But think with me. God saved eight in the Ark of Noah, 17 Egypt with Joseph, and he says in Exodus 32.10 that he could have started over with Moses. I'm going to wipe them all out and start over with you, right? God always saves a remnant. But if any of these old earth views were true, he can't. 
And again, if he can't save a remnant, how can you trust him to save you? But because he always saves a remnant, you can trust him to save you. Is that right? And this is, to me, the single biggest of the six. This is the one I'd like to concentrate on. The word nefesh is Hebrew. But I talked about it when I talked about marriage on Sunday night. Remember, nefesh is life, soul, blood. But soul is the intellect, emotion, and will. And so nefesh organisms are those which have soul. Now, plants do not have soul. Insects do not have soul. But only the animals, such as from shrews all the way up to dinosaurs and people, have nefesh. We have nefesh. Animals have nefesh. But... Uh, if you believe in any of these old earth views, you're saying that the death of a nefesh organism occurs prior to human sin. After all, if dinosaurs supposedly evolved into existence 200 million years ago, if supposedly they became extinct 65 million years ago, supposedly life and death have been going on of nefesh organisms for millions and billions of years, correct? Well, take a look at Genesis 2-7. That's where God puts the nefesh into the body of the man. We talked about that during the creation's view of marriage. But we have to do this. I want to talk about the difference between biological death versus biblical death and physical death versus spiritual death, because that's really important. Now, we take a look at Romans 5.12, also verses 14 through 17. Paul says that death came into the universe only because of the sin of Adam. Is that correct? Now think with me, if you believe that life and death have been going on for millions and billions of years, then Paul is not telling the truth. If Paul is not telling the truth, if you cannot, uh, well, rely upon him in Romans 5.12, then here's what I want you to do. I want you to open your Bibles, grab a hold of the book of Romans, tear it out of your Bible. Excuse me? If you cannot trust Paul, in one verse, it negates the whole book. Also, though, there are other references. Again, in 1 Corinthians 15, 21, 22, verse 45, Paul basically reiterates the exact same statement. And James 1, 15. Now, James is the half-brother of Jesus and the early leader of the church in Jerusalem, correct? And he says basically the same thing. He says and all these other references, that death came into the universe only because of the sin of the first Adam. And this is critical, because it's only through the sin of the first Adam that death came into the universe, and it's only through the death of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, that it can be taken away. Is that correct? This is really important stuff we're talking about tonight. There are additional problems with the gap theory, wouldn't the flood have erased all evidence of the billions of years that are being taught in the gap theory? And if all the animals were destroyed, then they would have no relation to the present animals, and yet they look exactly alike. One of the proofs that creation is true, that evolution is not, and we have a whole book on it out there, is that nothing changes over time. But evolutionists say that everything changes over time. The very word evolution means change over time, but, but the fact of the matter is, when we look in the fossil record, we see that nothing changes over time. Every time we find something in the fossil record, 
And if the creature is still alive today, they are identical except for one thing. The old ones are bigger. Hello? Yeah, you see, evolution says you start small and get big. You go from the simple to the complex, that you go from amoeba to man, is that correct? That supposedly you get bigger, better, faster, smarter over time. But when we look at the physical evidence, we see that in fact everything is getting smaller, dumber, etc. Uh, it's absolutely true. Your great-grandparents were individually more intelligent than you are. They had faster reaction times. We know that from scientific studies. We are not getting bigger, better, faster, smarter. We're getting smaller, slower, and dumber. And that's just a scientific truth. But that's also consistent with exactly what the Bible says, is it not, that we will wear out as a garment? Well, also, is the fossil record the result of Lucifer's flood or the flood of Noah? I mean, you could look at it either way, of course. But which one's really true? Well, how can day six be very good if Adam and Eve were standing on a worldwide graveyard of trillions of dead things? A record of death, pain, cancer, killing, disease, suffering, and extinction. How could you call the earth very good, the creation very good, if Adam and Eve were started, you know, just standing on top of trillions of dead things that had died before? Makes no sense at all, does it? Additional problems with the gap theory. It is not the character of the God of the Bible to use misfits, blind chance, and death. He gets it right the first time. Again, he doesn't have to learn over time. He doesn't have to experiment. He doesn't have to do things slowly and gradually, turning a wrench here and a screwdriver there. He knows it all. He is powerful enough to do it all at one time. Is that correct? The God that would need to use evolution is cruel, wasteful, and deceitful. He is certainly not the God of the Bible. Amen? Amen? Now, I hope that this review has been helpful because remember that repetition is the essence of education. I know many of you knew some of the things that I shared tonight. You might not have known them all. But in reviewing these things, it will help to reinforce what you know to be true, and it will help you in your witness that you'll be able to then grace, lovingly correct those Christians who have got it wrong, and you'll be able to effectively witness to the world who believes in evolution. Well, I could have got an amen from somebody. I'm sorry, has this just been too overwhelmingly... Uh, I didn't know I had that effect on people. Well, I want to ask Pastor Bill to come back up. We want to leave time for the quartet to maybe do one more number, because I know. You see, he shared it with me in secret. I know there's a song that Pastor Bill wants them to do again. <laughs> Pastor Bill. If you would like to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ, you may contact us at the church website, gospelbaptistchurch.com, or you can go to Facebook and type in Gospel Baptist Church, Bonita Springs, Florida. Also, you could call the church office at 239-947-1285. Thank you, and God bless.